Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is another episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is the creator of Fortunate Horse, the label where you'll find him on such podcasts as Rude Tales of Magic and Oh, These Stars of Space. Please welcome Taylor Moore. Hello, hello. I love horror films. Hell yeah. That's what it's all about. Very happy to have you here, man. Oh, thank you so much. This was a very good opportunity to go back and watch one of my favorite movies. And every time I do it, you know, you're like, oh, hey, where's the streaming? How do I get this movie? Or maybe just go read an article about it. And then, of course, while you're doing the thing, you know, the world is watching and the world is like, well, if you like this, maybe look at this. How about this and this? And so I lost like four hours to falling down a horror movie recommendation Hell rabbit yeah. hole. of like, looky, what else came out? Look, you know, what, what else came out that year and, and all that stuff. And, and one of the filmmakers have been up to. And God damn it. It's all. Anytime, anytime I get to talk about a movie or anything, everything around the process of like going back and talking or watching it again and talking about it reminds me of how much I fucking love movies. Hell yeah. Oh, man. What a beautiful thing. <laughs> movies. It's the best. TV, kick rocks. <laughs> I, I mean, good. take it easy, sister. No, <laughs> I want it to be one and a half hours, two, three hours. <laughs> Although that being said, I mean, one of the favorite, my favorite movies I ever saw was like seven hours long. Wow. And you I had to watch it in like, it's like an intermission in the middle of it. You know, Matthew Barney, the conceptual artist. Sure. He did, uh, uh, he, he made a movie called River of Fundament about the car industry in Detroit mm. and, uh, shit. Like shit, you know, yeah. doo doo, mm -hmm. and uh, he made this incredible like day long movie about it, and I loved. It. I think it's fine. That sounds fun. Hey, you start getting experimental with your film, you've already got a built in audience for me. So <laughs> it's an invitation to turn your phone off. Why don't you like long movies? The problem oh, yeah. is, yeah, I think if you don't like long movies, the problem is you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror, where it started for you, how you became oh, a fan? Oh, fuck, dude. Let me tell you about my history with fucking horror. Here's how it started. Okay. Now, back, I'm, I'm very old. So back in the day, this is before the internet, whenever you moved houses, you had to get new cable. You had to buy cable, you know, and you had cable TV. Or if you didn't move houses, but you bought cable TV, the cable company would give you a month of the premium channels for free as a test drive. That's how they get you, baby. The right? And so you would get a month of HBO, Showtime, and Cinemax. And I found this out when my family moved in fifth grade. And I would sneak downstairs after my family had gone to bed because I had been told not to watch HBO. <laughs> and the first time I did, I mean, sneaking out, even just down to the downstairs of your own house, just enormously thrilling. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like every psychological engine the human brain has firing all at once, <laughs> just like a, an orchestra, full steam, all notes constantly. You're I mean, just, you know, as a little kid, you're doing this. It's unbelievably thrilling. And you get in there and you turn the TV on and you, Hit HBO, and the first image you see is Brundlefly oh vomiting all over. Is it's it's the climax of the fly, and that was it, man. I imprinted like a baby goose. Now, I mean, there was also like I, you know, there was also other things. Like I remember when the It miniseries, Stephen King's It miniseries, came out, and I guarantee you, every kid that saw it had the same experience of just perfect equal parts of just being enthralled in absolute terror and repulsion <laughs> at Tim Curry as Pennywise the Clown. Oh, so yeah. I think I think like that. 
that first, like seeing just the end of the fly <laughs> late at night, having snuck down to see it. And um, uh, like completely, because it was on network TV, seeing the Pennywise, the uh, uh, the It miniseries, yeah. insane. It, absolutely wild to put that on network TV where a kid could stumble <laughs> into it. And you know, and there was a th- there was you know, not a thousand, but there was uh, you know a dozen times you go over to a friend's house and maybe you can see something you're not supposed to see, or they have an they have like a you know they have a VHS copy of a Basket Case Three Ooh, or like the Howling about Freaks. I remember <laughs> one time I went over to my friend Jim's house and his family had HBO, not the trial. They had it wow. all the time, and this motherfucker puts on the Howling Freaks. <laughs> Sold like that is. <laughs> I mean, I can't like. I came of age in the perfect time of life to intersect with some of the weirdest, coolest heart that's ever been made. And so I saw it in these little these little moments, these specs like that. And of course, you know, my family would go to the local video store, Gordo, Alabama, nineteen eighty eight. And I am, and it's the only, it was the first video store in town. It was the only one, it was, you know, an hour drive to rent a movie. So that you couldn't, no wow. one's going to rent a, so this was it. This was like this magical thing. Yeah. Uh, and my parents just Great year didn't, for horror too. Oh, I mean the whole fucking decade, honestly. <laughs> but I remember like my, 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 my mom would go and like look for something to rent for the family or whatever. This is pretty relatively new at the time. And I would head straight for the horror section just to gawk at the VHS covers and just read the backs endlessly. You know, there's so, I have never seen Wishmaster, but I could describe the VHS cover for every single sequel of that franchise. (laughs) Hell yeah. That that Tim Curry miniseries, in my own life, truly a formative experience because I have mentioned this before, but I just like, I came to horror pretty late, all things considered. And a big part of that was because I was on like a school trip with some friends and, you know, they stick you like six to a hotel room <laughs> and put yes. you in there like sardines. Yes. And I was the only one who was like not interested in watching a horror movie, but you're more scared of saying, no, I don't want to watch a horror movie <laughs> in front of your friends. And so they put on the It miniseries and oh. the kid's name, the little brother's name is Georgie. And so he oh, just, God. Georgie gets brutally murdered right away. In the first five minutes. <laughs> I was like, this is truly traumatizing to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we all float down here, George. I oh, don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Welcome to hell. <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, th- that It miniseries, that has to be the scariest thing that had ever been on TV up to that point. And it's funny, too, especially because it's so front-loaded with scares. Like, the second part of it, when they're all adults, like, Sure, the guy kills himself and everything at the very beginning, but by and large, it is there's. I don't think that there's anything nearly as impactful as what's in the first part of it when they're kids in Derry. And so, especially when you are a kid and you can kind of transpose yourself into the shoes of them a little better, having that imagery paired with that, I think, makes it really prime for just fucking with a kid's mind. Yeah, I, I mean, that miniseries would have some indelible images. You know, and I don't think that... Well, I mean, first of all, the way it's shot is fantastic. The the way that the clown is placed, especially in the swamp shots, mm-hmm. the the dream figures are placed mm-hmm. in that shot. It like immediately produces like that monumental horror aspect, right. where there is this sort of reverse sacred image in like this altar of space, and the distance to the camera is just somehow innately unnerving yeah. i think like good hard directors have figured out in the same way that there's like certain note 
intervals that terrify you, like you know, like a D minor diminished or like a uh, or like a diminished D or like you know, the, like the brown note or whatever. Uh, <laughs> like there seems to be a certain distance from the camera. If you just have a single person stand there, it's terrifying. Yeah, like I don't understand <laughs> it. I don't get it. But all the great directors, maybe it's like back in the day, we we knew that like well, if someone's standing that far from us, they can't be a friend. What are you know? So I think sure. it's like it looks fantastic. I still think about that that shot of the guy's head in the refrigerator, but also Tim Curry. His performance to me is what really moves it into this should not have been on television. He, <laughs> he just, he's, he's frightening. He's a frightening man. He really, I feel like he really understands the whole, like he really understands the role in a way that it, he does lean into the comedy parts of it, which mm-hmm. then makes it that much more terrifying when the switch happens. The teeth. It's the, yeah. Ugh, yeah. The ugh. way he wears those teeth. And the, the, it's the pupils great. change and everything. It's amazing. It's, it, I can't believe they put it on TV, but it <laughs> fucked up like generations of kids. It sure did. Do you have a favorite subgenre within horror? Something that you're reaching for more often than the rest? Ooh, that's a really good question. I got to say, I do love the arty horror that has, I, I hate to call it elevated horror. I hate to call it art house horror. I don't know what, but I don't have a better name for it, but I do like a lot of it. Uh, even when it's like Pat. I, I tend to like it. And I also fucking love John Carpenter. I mean, like, I, yeah, that's... The king. I, I just fucking love it. I really, really love the just absolute freak show of, like, a Stan Winston practical effects stuff, a John mm-hmm. Carpenter movie. And I think, like, that late 70s, early to mid 80s, I guess really the whole 80s, and then... And then just sort of skip it for a little bit because I, I, I could not give less of a shit about slashers uh-huh. and serial killers. I don't care. They're not scary. I'm not scared of, I don't fucking care. There I want, go. I want body horror. I want Lovecraftian cosmic oblivion. Okay. Those are my two favorite things. I feel you. I mean, the body horror stuff is, I feel like is kind of the only thing that really still gets me anymore in a way that like, you're still you're you're chasing the dragon <laughs> like i need to feel again <laughs> and so you know uh color out of space came out and i was on the edge of my seat for that damn movie oh i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> no i'm I'm sure some people like it listen i'm gonna say a lot of opinions well in the in this conversation <laughs> i don't mean to yuck anybody's yum i acknowledge all art is subjective mm-hmm. and i want nothing more than for me and my fellow humankind to have pleasure and enjoyment in art there you go but i thought that movie fucking sucked wow well <laughs> the more color out of space for me then <laughs> yeah baby take it i don't know i don't even know Okay, this is I don't want to I don't want to delay, but I got to ask, what do you think is the best Lovecraft movie? Wow. I mean, even if it's not like, hey, this is based on a Lovecraft story, I think I'm going to cheat and say that In the Mouth of Madness is the best Lovecraft movie because it, I mean, okay, I could also say Reanimator because I really love Reanimator. Sure. It is, you know, the the most notable maybe direct adaptation, but mm-hmm. come on. You know. Mouth of Madness is it, look Johnny Carps, he's tied for first amount picked on uh, on this show. So he really knows what he's doing. Yeah, he really does. I, I'm doing some research into like I've never made synth music before. I'm getting into it, so I'm listening to a lot of Carpenter stuff. Hey, fuck it, it's fucking great. I'm, I'm not telling. I'm not saying anything <laughs> like anyone who listens to this show wouldn't. Uh, like this is someone's not listening and being like that fellow makes music. John Carpenter, you Wait. say. 
Hmm. Not the carpenter, the filmmaker, the director. But I mean, just like if you haven't listened to it in a while, just go listen to the theme of Christine. Uh, It's on Spotify. Just go listen to it. It's fucking great. He really is incredible. And I think that it's great that he's kind of still putting out music, even though he's sort of removed from directing now at this point. Also a great interview. Yeah. Just he's he's like, first of all, this is maybe going to sound mean, but I love that he's sort of of the old school where like directors still like shit talked each other yeah it's great he doesn't care <laughs> when, when you're that good and you work so much and like you've made yeah. such an imprint on culture you can just be an honest laid-back guy with no pressure to be anything other than yourself it's, Hell yeah. it's a and good place to be that's exactly where he's at now he's just like i just want to smoke weed and play video games with my son and like it's like I, hell yeah that's the dream john <laughs> lovecraft for me is always I think that the two most fundamental horrors are the philosophical, which is the cosmic horror, and the immediate, most, most unphilosophical, most literally embodied horror uh, is body horror, like mm-hmm. the, the, the the destruction and rending of of the flesh. Sure. And you can make it. You can make an argument that like those two things are essentially the same thing because it's about oblivion of the self, but I'm more interested in Lovecraft stuff these days, and I would even argue that Kill List. Is a Lovecraft movie. Interesting. But a, but a new kind. Sure. Well, we'll definitely get into it. I'm interested to hear more. Um, and that that's a great segue into today's movie. Perfect. <laughs> the movie we're talking about today is Kill List from 2011, directed by Ben Wheatley and co-written between him and his wife, Amy Jump. Just really spectacular. This is one that I had known about, but actually hadn't seen until this uh, until this episode. Uh, do you remember how you came to this movie? If it was uh, something that you seeked out, is that seeked out? <laughs> I seeked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, me seek. I, I seek. I do. I do a seek. I'll do a seek. God, go down to the go down to the kitchen. Have a seek. Uh, no, I saw a field in England, and I just fell completely in love with. It. And I know you do not like that film. I wasn't gonna say it, but because <laughs> <laughs> we I, we saw, we talked about a lot of movies to watch, uh, and I suggested this. Did I suggest a field in England? Maybe I did. And you, you were like, mentioned I don't it know. as one of several, and in my saying of these, I'm more interested in those ones <laughs> because I don't care for Field in England. It's true. That is a film made like that's fair. <laughs> like there are some movies I think if you don't like it, the problem is you. You don't understand. I think it is completely reasonable to not like that movie. Mm-hmm. If anyone's never seen it, it's almost impossible to describe. It's like a black and white, gross out social horror movie set <laughs> during the English Civil War. Yeah, and they like do mushrooms and weird shit. Weird. I mean, yeah. like there is definitely stuff to like in it, even for me. Like when I watch it, I wasn't like, oh, I'm having a miserable time and I am hating this. The, like, fun surrealism that was in it, I think, just didn't necessarily overcome some of the issues that I had with it. Sure. But that is not the film we chose. That's not the film we chose. And the film we chose today, not only did I love it, but it's the best damn horror movie ever made. Best one. In 2009, though, he had also directed a $30,000 crimedy, a a crime comedy, that shot in just over a week called Down Terrace. And Wheatley said that uh, he wanted to take everything a little further. They got a little bigger budget for a longer shooting schedule. And from the beginning, he'd been interested in making a horror movie. And he said, now is the time. Now, the difference is that it didn't necessarily need to hit all the conventions of what a horror movie looks like. 
because Ben seems to hew closer to this show's opinion on what makes something part of the genre, saying that he would include things like Come and See, which so would I. And he says, I think it's psychological horror, and these kinds of things are not necessarily within the realms of the supernatural, but they'll get into the audience's head and play with those same feelings. Obviously, Come and See is a horror movie, and it's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Incredible. I'm not going to rewatch it anytime soon. <laughs> it is it is tough. It is a famously a very tough watch. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, ca- category and genre definitions are trash. It, it, it's a fun game to play. Like, oh, is this more this? But that that's a language game. That's like playing uh, mind meld with your friends or like mm-hmm. hanging out and playing like the celebrity game with your family over the holidays. It's just a game with words. It doesn't really mean anything. And I think if you love getting spooked and if you love movies, you have got to acknowledge that the result is what counts. <laughs> That's right. That's my favorite song. <laughs> Not a hit for ABBA, who wrote it originally in 1977. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I famously think genre is fake. It's it's totally what you make of it. And if something yeah. is horrific to you, then it's a horror movie. So done and done. Yeah, it's they're very good. They're very useful for like explaining to people what you're getting up to. Like if I'm like, hey, George, you want to be in my movie? And you're like, what kind of movie? If I said horror or porno to right, like two very different set of expectations. Sure. <laughs> but Although, good- I mean, look, depending on the era. <laughs> yeah, well, true, true. But the, the thing is, is like, you know, they're very useful for when you're explaining to someone what to expect in certain ways. Yes. Definitely. Like if I say I'm budgeting a horror film versus I'm budgeting a, a, a superhero movie, sure. there's a good chance superhero movie is gonna is gonna cost more so you know you're able to they're useful in that regard but baby no get mm-hmm. that stuff out of here when we're talking about <sighs> jouissance that enjoyment <laughs> Ooh, we love it so much <laughs> he also told indiewire i'm kind of a believer in the kubrick thing about the non-submersible unit where you look what? for them <laughs> oh i'll explain it do Don't... you know have you heard that phrase before oh yeah baby oh we're going to school today this is great <laughs> go ahead so you look for the main images in the movie before writing the script and work backwards from that and so i'll diverge Slightly from the quote here to explain this in more detail. Basically, Kubrick said that a film's narrative structure should be six to eight, quote, non-submersible units or sequences that function independently of each other. And they each have their own beginning, middle and end. These sequences can function on their own. But when they're placed together in the narrative film creates its own sort of exterior Kuleshov effect. And what one ends up with is an entire narrative that draws its strength from the fact that you're forced to draw connections between them. And so it's like getting the narrative thrust of 2001 A Space Odyssey, despite the fact that the vignettes can feel pretty disconnected. But yes. putting them all next to each other, you see what they're trying to say. Boy, that's great. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there you go. There we Correct. go. Correct. Yes. Cooper knew what he was doing, turns that's out. A, that's a great way to think about making movies. Right as hell. Yeah. Okay, back to the quote. I think that you then guarantee that your film has its moments instead of just plot. That's definitely how we worked on this movie. A lot of it is inspired by my anxieties and dreams, or should I say nightmares? Things like cults in the woods and the tunnels is all stuff that I've had as a recurring nightmare since I was very little. I used to live near the woods, so that kind of comes from there, because a lot of people kept talking about the Wicker Man, and is it a reference point? But it wasn't the Wicker Man itself that scared me. These things, culturally, are quite close to the surface in the UK. That phrase, quite close to the surface, that's the whole movie. I mean, that's Kill List, right? Yeah, it's as yeah. soon as you scratch it, as soon as you scratch the surface, you see the the social contract kind of fall apart and, and uh, the underlying uh, people controlling things and everything. So, And he did write it with the actors already cast, 
which he said gives you a head start when, since you already know what's doable for them, and you can play to their strengths as performers and as people. That is one of my main things about this movie is the performances, especially in the first act. Mm-hmm. And so much of it was improvised and that it was written for these actors uh, and they were people that he knew. I know that he had worked with Michael Smiley before and you can tell. Mm-hmm. I mean, this movie does something that so few movies do, let alone horror movies. We're assuming that everyone's seen it. Mm-hmm. This whole first sequence that is the dinner party in the house. And I would even say the entire movie up until they leave the house to go and actually, and to go on the kill job, mm-hmm. to go on the hit job, the way that it paints domestic life and the interactions between them all, every actor, every director in the world wishes they could <laughs> capture that kind of naturalism in any movie. You know, and they did it in a very, very small horror movie. And I think it makes it so much more terrifying. So much more terrifying. Mm -hmm. The fact that these people, and they're not nice people. People think (laughs) that like, cause like people get it in their head. And I, and and he talks about this in one of his interviews. You know, uh, uh, people get it in their head that like, oh, when you want to, when you want the characters of a movie to be sympathetic. Right. It's like you want you, you want them to be a hero. You want them to save the cat. Right. As the screenwriting manual says in the first five pages, no one saves a cat, although there is kind of a cat mentioned, ironically, <laughs> but it is not a very it is not at all a saving of the cat. There is not really a saving the cat moment. It The movie gets you into these people's bodies by having them be just bracingly and in its own way, horrifyingly real and honest and that and and you immediately go see them go through one of the most socially terrifying things that can happen is you go to someone's house and it goes bad Uh over dinner and they start yelling at each other and the friend is weird and and people say weird things and the one of the couples is fighting it's torture it's torture yeah yeah and i think that you're so right that the first part of the movie is so crucial because by building this naturalistic feeling where you believe in the characters, it then makes the shoe drop that much more impactful and that much more interesting because you've bought into the world. You're on board for what's happening. And so when things start having dream logic or start having sort of these high concept things happening, like more genre e things, you're like, I'm along for the ride because I've already bought into this world and these characters. Yes, that is very, very true because things do get crazier later but i think a lot of filmmakers would shoot the first act in very traditional ways and then you know sort of mirror the plot elements and 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 the general tone with obviously with different cuts and angles and things like that mm-hmm. no 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 the editing launches into this movie in such an aggressively weird way that it unnerves you mm-hmm. I, I i describing it george i can't Wait, why do we, why do we like this first third so much? Because to hear us describe it, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back like one of my favorite edits in the entire movie in a movie full of like really gutsy fun cuts is the moment when he's leaving the house and he's doing a bit with his son at the mm-hmm. front door because they're just standing there talking and it cuts to him acting like a gorilla. 
like wearing different clothes, I think, like in a different location. And he's doing a bit with his son and then it cuts away. And there's no there's no fade in or fade out, you know, in any like figurative or literal way mm. to that moment. Yeah. It's just even the cutting of the domestic scenes is really strange and unnerving. And the 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 movie never it never lets you like sit comfortably, not from the first scene until the last shot. Yeah, and I mean, it's super purposeful as well. You know, he talked about how, like, a day isn't just like, oh, we're mad the whole day. Like, you have your peaks and valleys, and so it can feel like flashes of emotion of the day being like a memory, kind of. Yeah. Oh, and there's this great decision they made. So so we already talked about the like the, the fight at dinner that sort of, you know, like brings that first scene to a head and sort of pushes the main character into taking the deal that will propel the rest of the film. Uh, well, we think that that's what propels the rest of the film. It's really <laughs> up for grabs, as we find out later. They have this big fight at dinner, and every other movie would cut to the next day or cut to a post-dinner scene where it's just the main couple or it's just the friends. But no, we just cut to later. Well, first of all, we get this amazing scene with the wife where she's revealed to be kind of an asshole. It's great. <laughs> and then we cut to just later in the night, and everyone's hanging out again. And it, you feel you f- that one cut makes you feel emotionally like you have been hanging out with this group of people for six hours. <laughs> It's great. It's it's fantastic. It does really what you need to do for this this quartet of characters. Yeah, really great editing for sure. The cast is fantastic. It's Ayanna Burring as Shell, Emma Fryer as Fiona, Michael Smiley as Gal, and Neil Maskell as Jay. And uh, I mentioned this before we started, but I listened to both commentaries for this movie, one with Ben and Amy, and then one with Mayana, Michael, and Neil. And the actors one in particular, I really enjoyed. They just seem absolutely delightful. And they really, they talked about how they really enjoyed hanging out together. And I think that especially the dynamic between Gal and Jay, between the past friendship that is so evident and the way that he kind of acts as like the conscience for him a lot of the time, it just works so well and the performances are just incredible for sure it's very good i mean mean, there's just so many little things i'm not gonna talk about every little head nod and eye follow (laughs) but it's great i mean and that's what you get when you have like ensemble actors who are capable of acting so naturally Mm -hmm. and are willing to improvise and a director and producers and even at the level of financiers are willing to let you improvise that is extremely rare uh to like go into a movie shoot intentionally Letting people improvise so much. Yeah. It happens a lot in a lot of films, but people, it's hard to get funding for a, a project that you admit in pre-production and funding is going to be semi-improvised. All of our shows on Fortune Horse are improvised and I edit uh, Rue Tales of Magic and for a reason, you know, like you get certain types of relationships and certain types of conversation and dialogue that you just cannot get if you're banging at a typewriter as noble as noble and beautiful, <laughs> beautiful as the history of the written word and that wonderful archetype of the lone writer begging away, putting those participles <laughs> onto verbs or whatever those freaks do. Mm-hmm. As beautiful as that is, baby, it is hard as hell to compare. Mm-hmm. It is hard as hell to compare that to what really feels like an honest conversation between these two friends with a really complicated relationship who alternate wildly like a low frequency oscillator just between confidence and complete confusion which i think is like one of the main that's one of the 
one of the themes of the film, and, and I think one of the reasons that it, it makes it a great horror film is like, is the entire film is about that oscillation between certainty and total confusion. Yeah, I love the way that this movie kind of comes together in terms of feeling that looseness. You know, you look at some of the more mainstream movies and you can see where it like, there's a block and it just says improvise here. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when you compare that to something like this, where he did write a pretty complete script, which they then would shoot a take with the script. And then once they had that, they would then shoot another one that was kind of improvised, which let them keep the allusions to the more direct version, but create this less confined story. And it lets viewers kind of form their own interpretations a little bit more. This is something that they did on Down Terrace as well, and I think that it does work really well, not only to create that naturalism that we already talked, but then to also make it feel like it's not just hitting us over the head with the story. So he started assembling the script saying, for me, I guess the script really started from this dream I used to have, which was being in the woods, hearing music, and following an awful lot of people who were going off to do some kind of worship that I didn't understand, and then me watching them and them turning, seeing me, and chasing me. That was the key image for me that had disturbed me since I was very small. And cults in particular were interesting to him because of the lack of control that people feel. Not only mm. politicians and bankers being inscrutable, but also just kind of reacting to the times. You know, he he described the Iraqi invasion as akin to Vietnam in terms of the way that politicians just decided to go ahead with it despite all the outcry and protest against it. And of course, there was recessions happening as well at the same time. And he said, I wanted to make a film about a family that was living with that. They're kind of a, quote, stock family, but they're under a lot of contemporary pressure because they're in a lot of debt. And once you're in that world of debt, there's no way to turn the boat around, is there? You can't do it fast enough. You're locked in. And that's the same for everyone. Basically saying that under that pressure, that erodes the social contracts. And what does that do to all of these little now tribes of people who decide that we have to fend for ourselves? I mean, yeah. <laughs> this was uh they were making this in 2010 2011 the recession was especially in 2011 i think it was maybe worse over there than here 2011 was the year of the riots in london i mean yeah, that you know right. over here which was in the news cycle for a week over there a, an incredibly vital <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and an important event especially that you know I, you never hear anyone talk about them anymore but that was a big fucking deal and they um, well i'm sure they weren't writing it while the riots were going on the production schedule doesn't work that way but like the pressures the events that created the riots were bubbling up at that time definitely i mean, I mean every, it's all there like the post-war thing that this 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 fan that thing also that he said about they're a stock family but they're under all these pressures yeah yeah. I mean, that's it. Like, and this, my, my, my fundamental thesis about what makes this a truly capital G great horror film is it so perfectly captures all of the anxieties that were just under the surface at the time. Yeah. We are still not capable of dealing with people who come back from war. Mm -hmm. And we are not capable of dealing with what they do when they're at war and why we sent them there and what that means. Right. We have a monster in the house that we don't exactly know how to deal with. And we find ourselves doing monstrous things in response to pressures that we don't understand from entities that we cannot control and can barely perceive. Mm-hmm. And that's what this movie is about. In every single scene, every shot, it is about 
that confusion, that lack of control, that reactionary attitude of, well, fine, I am going to control it and I'm going to do so in the worst way, like in the loudest, most immediate way possible of like wild reactionary violence. Yeah. And there's the whole angle of how Jay as this, you know, a, a return soldier who's got like a psychosomatic back problem, who's scared to go to work. They, they talk about this, this like failed or botched or like very dire job that takes place six months or eight months before the movie takes place in, in Kiev and how badly it went. And so he's got this post traumatic, you know, he's, he's still, still stressed out from this. He's imagining that his back is hurt. He's this person whose world doesn't really make any sense anymore. And everyone keeps yelling at him to wake up, wake up, wake up. And when he does wake up, what does he realize? You can't. Right. You can't wake up from the nightmare. There is no real world that you can wake up to. It's the kill list all the way down. Wow. And that's the heart. And that's why I would argue it's a, it's a kind of Lovecraftian film. And I don't, not just because there is a like a pagan cult you know, worshiping old gods in it. Mm-hmm. I think the superficial similarity, what really makes it a great Lovecraft movie is the fact that these pressures and horrors that are pushing the stock family around are Lovecraftian. Yeah. But it's not a, well, maybe I'll save that for later. I'll <laughs> save that. I'll save the butt for later. Ooh. All right. Martin Pavey. I also just want to shout out him. He did the sound design, which I think is absolutely killer in this movie. Really, really spectacular. Yeah, so, great. And they had to move quick to take advantage of their budget, which was about $800,000. They shot the house stuff in just under four days. That's wild. It's great. I love it. All the house stuff, too, is like you never see a shot wider than 30 feet. <laughs> Ever. Even when you, even when they shoot him in the backyard, it's one of those British backyards. Yep. That's right. <laughs> you know? A little lot that they have. Yeah. yeah. So. He sits back there and he eats the dead rabbit that the cat brought. <laughs> That's the widest shot until until the until the third name on the kill list. Uh, I think I guess we see we see some establishing shots when they're like scoping out the first targets, and we see some establishment shots. Even that uh, is very tight. Even, you don't yes, see like the whole building. Or you anything. don't. You don't. Yeah, you don't even see the entire building. It's just like the door and some windows. Yeah, they managed to make like suburban England feel like a labyrinth. Yeah, it's great. Oh, it's so good. It's really great. Um, they did only make about half of their budget back, four hundred and sixty-two thousand dollars. <sighs> But, I mean, it's a, it was an extremely limited release, so that does kind of check out to me. As far as I could tell, based on the information that was available to me, it looked like it was only playing in 10 theaters at its height. Like, that's very few. <laughs> I'm sure it's paid for itself since then. I'm sure, I'm sure. Since yeah, then. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, it was interesting, you know, uh, this, even since 2011 to now, the difference in how much money you can make back off of a physical release has shifted dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so... When this did come out on DVD, it's certainly possible that it was like it was getting released again, especially since it had built up quite a critical buzz. Even the people who didn't like it had like visceral reactions to it and were still talking about it. it you know, this kind of like a, a no press is bad press kind of stuff. Yes. And the ending especially got a lot of people talking. I remember when it came out long before I could, I ever saw it. Uh, when I first started to like look into it, when I was searching for after I saw a field in England, I was like, I have to watch this person's, all this person's movies. The biggest, like all the, all the hits for it, you know, are people talking about a divisive ending, you know, <laughs> that gets people talking. And I think that again, I think reasonable people can disagree on the ending. I think if if you're a train brain baby that don't like the the the, the ending, that's okay. <laughs> it's fine. That's fine. It's okay. There's a lot of ways to be, but you can't deny that that first third is its own self-contained 
terrifying family drama. Definitely, definitely. Well, let's get into it. It is, I think, kind of a perfect opening in that it starts, you get like whiplash right away. You know, you talked about the the editing, but it starts with this creepy symbol being slowly drawn in chalk and then cuts to intense mundane horror of these two parents, Jay and Shell, fighting over having gone through $40,000 in eight months. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You find out it's because he bought a jacuzzi. Yep. He needs it for his back. He needs it for his back. <laughs> the symbol was designed by Ben Wheatley, and he was like, I hope nobody is like, hey, this guy ripped off the Blair Witch. But instead, everyone was like, hey, this guy ripped off Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. <laughs> and he was like, I don't even know what that is. I'm too old to be reading about wizards. <laughs> we don't deserve movies. We don't. We don't deserve them. God bless filmmakers, the true heroes, the true veterans. <laughs> And apparently, even this early, Ben and Amy didn't agree about having the logo there to start. She thought it should have just jumped right into the movie. She's right. What do you think? I think I like having it kind of bookend the 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 movie. I think it's cool having it there. I think it kind of works to create almost like the movie as a spell. You know, it feels like a pagan ritual a little bit. Okay. I did not like it, but I am open to that way of thinking. I do dig that. There we go. I also really like shell being able to speak swedish i think it creates a great gulf between the two of them especially playing into his paranoia there you know if he's already having some some tumult in his brain because of coming back from the war i think that playing into that paranoia definitely works and and creates this rough state in addition to being broke he's sneaking out to the garage to smoke but you can also kind of see like what once was in this moment when they play although it's also incredible foreshadowing <laughs> <laughs> like when you're like, whole when you so I like I said I watched it with uh-huh. two commentaries, so that means I watched it three times today, and it wasn't until like the third time that I was like, oh my god, he's sitting here stabbing the kid in life just like he does at the end. It truly like blew my mind when it clicked for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very good. It's great. Yeah. We also do get, like I said, some loose backstory. They thought very seriously about the backstory that they built for their characters, but it's only kind of communicated through talking around it. We do learn that he was part of the Iraq invasion. Shell served in the Swedish military as well. And two friends of theirs, Fiona and Gal, joined them for dinner. This scene, the dinner scene, was the test shoot and proof of concept for the actors that they wanted, where they got everyone and they said, this is who we want to cast. And then the producers was like, okay, that's good. But him and Gal also have dice tattoos, one that's on a one and one that's on a two, because one was the sniper and one was the spotter during the war. So you get sort of these things that build a fleshed out life, even if they're not actively spelling it out for you every single step of the way. And it's slowly hinted at and revealed that his job now is a killer for hire. Right. Also, the pictures on the fridge were their actual son's art. Oh, how about that? (laughs) Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Gal not eating anything red at the moment it was so funny. Like the part of what I also really love about this movie is that they're not like stand-ups. They're not like out there like whipping out jokes, but they are funny people. Yes. They are people with senses of yes. humor. Yes. They're funny like regular fucking people are yes. like just your average fucking friend they're <laughs> funny like your smart funny friends but not like your smart funny friends that are in comedy that took too many classes <laughs> and won't shut the fuck up like me that like that, that they're not me they're like normal people who are funny which you don't get 
in the fucking Blumhouse trash factory. No, no. I love them. I love it. I love it. James Wan, I lift you up. I hold you on high. God, you know, you, God sent you down to pay for uh, our sins. But like, you don't get that there. You know, no. though, because the way they make movies, they cannot have a character who acts, who is a n- real normal person. Sure. So they have to stylized. They, yeah. Every single one is way too stylized. For and they couldn't write it if they wanted to. They're, they're just sure. not the kind of people. They couldn't. I mean, they just, they're just not the kind of people that could. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, right. uh, maybe early on some, uh, you know, filmmakers that got, a, you know, that that's sort of making those kind of movies came from other places. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ben Wheatley himself has gone on to make some films that do not have this glimmer and, and, and shimmering uh, verite dialogue. Sure. You know, that's a fact. But like, it's, this is what, it's so hard. It's just no one in movies is ever just like naturally, normally funny. Mm-hmm. So when you get it, it's fantastic. You just, you immediately feel for them. I don't need to see them see a cat. Just, <laughs> just like tell a joke to a friend that doesn't go over super well and react normally to it. And you're, I'm yours. Yeah. And I will say it also extended into the commentary. That's part of why I liked it so much is like mm-hmm. in this scene where they're talking about like how he doesn't eat anything red, they started riffing in the commentary and I was like truly laughing out loud at it. I also love the handheld camera as they eat dinner. Very intimate feeling as we kind of bob around and get right up in their grill. Although Shell says Gal isn't allowed to say grace. Yes, very adamant about that. So let's just get this right out of the way. The reaction to this film between people who have thought about it is kind of split between two camps. One camp says that there, this, this film presents a mystery essentially for the viewer Mm -hmm. and that by careful viewing of it, and by the correct interpretation of what you're presented, you can discern, right, the occluded truth of the film, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is just, you know, how mo- the internet mostly watches movies, honestly, mm-hmm. these days. However, there's another camp that says, no, that's not the case. There is no occluded truth of the film. Mm-hmm. Even if the filmmakers may have known some details like what happened in Kiev or at what point the cult truly enters into the story, the filmmakers might have had that in the back of their mind. But the film as presented offers no truth aside from what we're presented Mm -hmm. and that there is no literal empirical interpretation of events that leads to a reasonable story. Yeah. That it is it is very poetic at the end of the day, and that it's just a red yarn collage. You're never going to put all the pictures and things together. I'm in the second camp. I do not think that there is a secret occluded truth of the, of the plot of the film that we are meant to discern. But those who do say that that line is a big indicator mm. that Shell might be more than she appears. Wow. I'm actually really glad that you brought this up because I pulled a few things to talk about this. (laughs) Yeah. Because we should say it up front because we're going to talk about like, oh, lines and hints and Mm -hmm. was that a dream or real? And what does that tell you about what's going on in the film? I would argue there is nothing going on in the film other than the film. (laughs) Yeah. So I think I am inclined to go with you on this and that I think it is kind of playing into the negative capability idea. Yes. For people who aren't familiar, John Keats talks about the way that an artist can access truth without being pressured by the framework of logic and science. And I think that Ben sort of talks directly about this. He says, it's the tenseness and the fear and the anxiousness that you feel. That's the movie. That's the meaning of it. And the ins and outs of who done it aren't that interesting at the end of the day. The actual meaning of these things can exist in several different layers and coexist. It's not about the individual scenes. It's about the way the scenes butt up against each other. And even Neil in the commentary said, it's sort of a Pinter or Beckett style feeling in that it's like a dream and it's real. 
it doesn't matter or it doesn't need to be one or the other that it can have both of these elements to it and that somebody who is really trying to engage with it can get something out of it despite it working sort of on a a more dream logic kind of element and yet it also works i would even argue that like aside from the ending Ugh, this is what makes the movie so fucking good is that he simul Ben Wheatley simultaneously made four movies a like bone cringe like cringe isn't even a good word for it because it's like social horror right it's like what was that fantastic movie about the the grandmother who comes back Deidre or oh, shit oh there was a great movie about a estranged mother who comes back to a family for a holiday and I cannot remember the name wow. of it and I'm ashamed George will come back and put the title of the film sure <laughs> hi this is George from the recordings future but still your past to say the movie Taylor was thinking of was Cretia from 2015 anyway but it's like social horror it like the office if it wasn't funny <laughs> you know yeah. you know like it's yeah, a genre yeah, yeah. and it, that that is here. That is here. It gets called drama a lot, but like the first third of this movie, very much the the social horror of these people together and this family, and also a really fun, like gross eight millimeter style crime thriller about these hitmen. You yeah. know, a, a beloved genre. And then you got your cult horror. I would talk about the fourth mode of the film, but they all work. It's a great cult movie. It's a great crime thriller. It's a great family drama. Yeah, it really is succeeding in each category totally it's very good and then at the end he just pulls the rug out from all of it (laughs) i do you know to your point where there are sort of lines that do feel important even if it isn't necessarily sort of alluding to some grander truth uh, there are a few that kind of are back to back to back here that lead to an explosion of the tension at the table first is that shell says the 80s recession was a lot more glamorous which (laughs) certainly feels poignant when you see the struggling that they're doing. Jay's also pining for the days of fighting Nazis. He said that it was, you know, a clear enemy. It was an honest war as opposed to fighting the Iraqis. Yep. And this is great because a major theme of the psychology of all these characters is decline. Yeah. Decline, decline, decline. Jay's masculinity is declining. He thinks his physicality is declining. Their culture is in decline. You know, Gal yearns for the moral certainty of fighting a clear, knowable, and obvious enemy who is everyone agrees is bad and exactly what we should do for it. Shell doesn't even get to have the decadence. Yeah. And what what was it in the 80s? She was a fucking kid. Right. She was a kid. She only saw people having fun. Right. With the cocaine and big shoulder pads, <laughs> you know, and now she's an adult. She can't afford cocaine and, you know, it's fast fashion. No one can agree on what's hot anymore. Yeah. And she's this gorgeous Swedish immigrant who married this, you know, snail of a, of a man <laughs> who can't even get his act together to go kill people. God damn it. Come on, Jay. It's, we're perfectly situated in just decline, decline, decline. And yeah. later on, when they ask their client, what's this all about? What does he say? Reconstruction. Reconstruction. That's right. Reconstruction. And also Gal talks here about Protestantism versus Catholicism and what that means for the Irish. And so this they're setting up sort of the idea of religion as one of these pillars of society kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Shell diminishes Jay's efforts in Iraq and he freaks out and he does this cloth pull <laughs> abracadabra trick that apparently, according to Amy, happened a lot in her childhood. What? Really? <laughs> yeah, that's what she said. Yikes. Because <laughs> they're sitting out there at the table, and he takes his dinner plate and turns it over upside down onto di- – just like, when that happens – because, oh, God, that's, that, that's what I'm talking about, social horror. Mm-hmm. That is scarier than 
any slasher film to me. <laughs> really? Yeah, I feel you, man. I feel you. A cute cat shows up to sneak some grub. <laughs> Apparently, it showed up with a cold, so it was irritable and difficult to work with. And then the wrangler told them, cats don't act outside. <laughs> That's fair. And I'm on the cat side there. Yeah. Out in the garage again, Jay agrees to take the job with Gal. It's three on the list right here in the UK. Easy peasy. Again, apparently whatever happened eight months ago took place in Kiev, and it shook Jay up a bit, but it's time to get back on the horse, mate. While they're doing this, Fiona sneakily draws the symbol we saw earlier on the back of a mirror in the bathroom and grabs a paper towel with some of Jay's dried blood from cutting himself shaving earlier. She tucks into her dress, and then she leaves with Gal. I love this sort of setting it up. You know, we've already seen this is also this is part of why I like seeing that symbol at the beginning is because now you're like, ah, fuck, here we go. Yeah, (laughs) here we go. Here we go. The magic trick is starting. Yeah. (laughs) The magic. Well, the magic trick started with the logo, I guess. Right. But now it's like now we're watching now you and when you watch it the first time, you think you're watching one magic trick. And upon rewatch, you realize you're watching a, a different trick than what you thought you were. Absolutely. The morning next, they find a dead rabbit in the yard, which is, I thought this was a really funny scene because they're like, oh yeah, it's the cat again. But this son of a gun is skinned, spatchcocked, the whole nine. Yeah, it's great. And then let's just cut to it. And this is a major part of his character. He says, oh, I'm going to cook the rabbit up. You know, I'm going to eat it. It's good meat. Mm -hmm. You know, he even eats a little bit of it raw and and Shell's like, oh, gross. He takes it. He fries it up with some nice peppers. Looks like some onion and garlic. And he goes and he puts a chair in the backyard and he just eats eats the dead rabbit meat that the cat brought. with himself. (laughs) It's perfect. I mean, and this is a big thing of his character. I mean, there's a freak out at dinner and we're establishing like this is a extremely prideful person who, like every, like all the other adults, feels as though he's being deprived of some station, right? Mm -hmm. Of some privilege in his life that he was owed, but he's not getting. In this case, it's something as small as like, other people just want to throw the meat away, but I'm a man. I'm mm-hmm. tough yeah. and I don't waste resources. I'm smart. I know that this is good, like caveman logic. Sure. You know, and this is a big part of his character in the movie is about this completely misplaced reactionary urge to like domination or violence by like, these sad men, mm-hmm. right? And even his having been paid tribute to by the cat, I think is, is a big part of it. But it's not enough. Right. Right. He, you know, he's got to show his wife that he's capable. Right. And again and again and again throughout the movie, he goes overboard and over the line to just like go the extra mile and show what a big tough or what a big moral guy is or what a what a big monster he is. And then, of course, in the finale, that comes to a head and he very much demonstrates to his wife what he is capable of. Yeah. And this is one of my big faces for this film. Why it's good. Like I said, is it perfectly captures all these things that are bubbling under the surface of society at the time. And one of them is men like this, especially, I mean, women like this, but especially men like this who feel that they're not being given something that was due to them by birthright. Mm -hmm. And so in reaction to that, they overact, they act out with this insane, they project conscious violence and it's, it's, Killing. It's killing us. Like it's, it's, you know, I have friends that have been physically attacked by armed gangs of these men, Mm -hmm. of these Jays. So I really feel that this movie is so good for 2022 and it was made in 2010, 2011, which shows you that like, that's one reason it's so good is that the things they're playing with this, this film is like a lightning ride, just getting all these things that they could see at the time that weren't of the time. They were going to predict and project the next 
probably the rest of our lives. Yeah. You know, yeah. they were right there, you know, only a few years after the the, the, the great fall in 2008 that was going to kickstart a lot of this to coming to the surface. And this film captures all of it. And there we have this sad little man mm-hmm. eating roadkill to prove a point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's a, an interesting line here that kind of projects Jay onto the cat in an interesting way where – Shell says he thinks the cat thinks we don't eat enough in the house and brings us little presents. I think the cat just likes killing rabbits. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yep. He says it's an act of service. She's like, the cat's a monster. Yeah. He heads over to Gal's after eating this rabbit, and Gal is in a sour mood since apparently Fiona broke up with him in a uh, a very fun way, which I will leave for people who are watching the movie. <laughs> it is a fun image, and I'm glad that the movie meant it literally. <laughs> I also think it's funny when Jay is like, good hangs last night, huh? And Gal is like, was it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, it was for Jay. (laughs) Because he's now, now Jay has like come out of his funk. Yeah. Because like the fight at dinner pushed him to a head. Mm -hmm. And now after refusing the call, he is finally going to cross the threshold. Yeah. And it is time to go meet the threshold guardian. Hell yeah. The client. Mm -hmm. I really love the way that they use these titles in a way that creates kind of a mythic feeling. Love it. You know, you talked about how there are these old gods that are kind of tied to it. And I think that in a way, these sort of archetypes represent old god style pillars of society. You know, the the client is this this gatekeeper, like you say, into the preacher, the librarian, the MP who's a member of politics, member of parliament. <laughs> member of politics. <laughs> well, that makes me an MP. <laughs> yes, I've mentioned Congress on Twitter. Call me MP, member of politics. Yeah, and and it does create this cool feeling, but there's also, it's handled in such an interesting way that they do that by like using minimal dialogue and stuff. Like it, all of a sudden, the fact that they're not having these these extended conversations makes you feel like, oh, you know, oh, we're in a library. There's a sanctity here. Like there is taking, they're taking this very seriously, very ritualistically. And, and I think that that is sort of part of where he's getting his self worth from is by, by taking it seriously, by saying, oh, I'm doing something important here. There is a huge pile of money on the table, which they said that that is all real money and that the accountant sat right there to make sure nobody stole it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess that's cheaper than buying prop money. Yeah. If you gotta have it anyway, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> no one sneezed. That's our crafty budget. <laughs> the client slices Jay's hand suddenly to seal the assignment in blood. I love this. Fuck, that was dramatic. <laughs> Gal. Yeah. And it sure is. And, but it's also like fucking nasty when there's like so much blood pouring out of it when he's washing it in the sink later. It's a gross cut. <sighs> so I'm on the cult side. <laughs> I'm just going to say it up front. Sure. I think that in the great symbology of this film, like what this movie, the, the archetypes it's playing with, mm-hmm. I think that my favorite line in the film is when he says fucking reconstruction. That <laughs> is such a goddamn bullseye to me. Mm-hmm. And I love what you said, because in hindsight, we're assuming people have seen the film. So we know that these guys are part of the cult. Yeah. That is going to come to the major four in the final act. And this is part of like the really overt ritual behavior of the cult when they first cut his hand. Although, of course, Fiona's scratching the symbol on him. Of course, maybe even perhaps other, you know, people in his life coming in his life maybe was part of the ritual. Uh, We don't know why Fiona, all that stuff. But like, if you look at the film as Jay and Shell and Gal representing 
all the anxieties and fears and all the uncertainties and inability to move on from the world that produced those uncertainties. Mm -hmm. And that's the tragedy of Jay, right? Like, that's their tragedy. Their tragedy is that they, like us, cannot escape the dream. We cannot wake up from the nightmare of the world that has produced our conditions. But the cult can. Mm. The cult is engaged in reconstructions. Mm. The cult isn't sitting around saying, would would rather have been economically depressed in the 80s. At least the music was fun, (laughs) you know? At least white people were still on the radio, right. you know, you know, that kind of, you know, that kind of like bygone era, golden age shit. The, no, no, the cult doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. The cult is willing to engage mythic structures to build a new world. Definitely. And however you feel about their process, uh, Robespierre, hashtag Robespierre was right. <laughs> however you feel about their process, you have to acknowledge at least it's an ethos. Definitely. And I think it's also interesting in that part of the reconstruction line is that he also calls them cogs. Mm-hmm. And there's no way for a cog to see the machine that it's a part of. Ah, but isn't there? George, but isn't there? Because this machine gives us two visions of cogs, the killers and the killed. Mm. And one of them is full of anxiety and self-hatred and confusion, and the other is happy and certain. Wow. Wow. So when they see their purpose, oh, I see. I see what you're saying. All right. Great point. Great point, Taylor. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get you on the cult side. Yeah, all right. We'll if see. You, listen, just do me a favor. If we take a pee break, don't look on the back of your bathroom mirror. There's <laughs> nothing there you'd like to see. Sure. Why not? I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll just take you at your face value here. Good. Yeah, weird that I would bring it up, but honestly, don't look. <laughs> they leave on their trip, though Gal has to pay for the hotel when Jay's card gets declined. Oh, I love that scene. <laughs> I love that scene so much. That is such a funny scene. Yeah. That this this killer who's on a mission to kill people has to go to the end of the hallway and get on the phone and yell at his wife for not like topping up his debit card. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. But it's another great moment of like this weird emasculation that just infuriates him. Yeah. It's so funny to I mean, first of all, Gal is like hitting on yeah. the receptionist, I guess, there. And she also puts the card in upside down. Which really made me laugh. <laughs> and, and Ben pointed it out in the commentary, and he was like, "This, I, it drives me insane." And I was like, "Hey, man, didn't even notice that's movie magic." Uh, it's fine, Ben. Relax. <laughs> it creates this interesting tone, I think, when it's officially revealed that they are there to kill somebody, and they still maintain the same kind of like friends chopping it up tone. But now they're like talking about killing a guy, and heck, maybe his dog too, for good measure. It creates this real cognitive dissonance in a, in a great way where you're like, oh, I really like these guys, even though we've seen the rage boiling between Jay, at least the way that he interacts with Gal, you're on board for this dynamic. And then when it shifts into them doing these dark, dark deeds, you go, oh, shit, am I on the wrong side here? This also forces the next jokes about wanting to kill the table behind them at the restaurant into kind of a new light where you go, oh, like, is he being serious <laughs> when these Christian dorks that he confronts when they pull out a guitar and start singing in the middle of the restaurant? He's not thrilled about it, to say the least. This is incredible. You could definitely have an entire alternate take on the movie just by comparing the Christians that are in the restaurant singing Onward Christian Soldiers versus the cult. Yeah. And like two very different ideologies about faith and the world. One of them ultimately successful, whereas the other gets their guitar taken away. I think it's interesting as well that the script originally had these like two different sects within the cult that were going to like be trying. One was trying to overthrow the other and and take charge. And 
you can still kind of see elements of it, even though it ultimately got kind of taken out from the story. You can see, like you said, where things kind of stand in as like a comparison point for them. These soldiers for Christ who are sacrificing themselves in a holy war and kind of pair that with the cult who is saying like, well, yes, it's up to you to sacrifice yourself. (laughs) I also love them leaving after the confrontation. They've got like these big smiles on their face. They just love hanging out together. Also, peak of the score. Incredible music here. The score kicks in, this like slam cut hallway, crazy chaotic, jubilant, weird strings, and they're just grinning down the hallway. And now we are seeing Jay is back on top. Oh, yeah. He has taken the job. (laughs) He just emasculated all those pussy Christians in the restaurant. He's a man and he's he's gonna, he's he's got agency. He's gonna take (laughs) control of the world. He's on top, baby. Hell yeah. Boom. Title card, the priest. (laughs) Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> Gal is conflicted, but Jay isn't sweating about it. So they bust in the back and wait in his office. And then they do the deed with Jay actually pulling the trigger after a brief pause. And something happens here, which I will bring up again shortly. Ooh. But Shell says via video chat the next day that Fiona came around with a present for their son and says she's waiting, which they both find strange. But they, but they agree that she could do with the company. And then next up is the librarian. And they sort of break into his little wank den, as they call it. And they find some kind of uh, video full of screams and sobs that makes both Gal and Jay pretty upset. Probably like Hellraiser. <laughs> what year was True Detective? Another fantastic, but also unofficial Lovecraft adaptation. Yeah, True Detective. Uh, well, not an adaptation. 2014. 2014. All right. So they definitely saw Kill List, right? What are some other... So I love this scene. Yeah, mm. True Detective, also very, very, very similar, I think, to Kill mm. List, script-wise. I think this this moment in particular really works for me. I mean, it's great when they do stuff like this. I think it definitely comes through in terms of the True Detective stuff, but also even movies like 8mm, the Nick oh, yes. Cage movie. Yes. Like, you can see how this is going to shift their path. This is something that they have now seen that they can't unsee, and it's going to completely divert them into following. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I completely interrupted. No, no, I was I was trailing off anyway. <laughs> what are some other? This is one. Of my, it's one of my favorite tropes in movies. Mm-hmm. What are some other? And you can only do it with movies, right? Mm-hmm. What are some other moments where we see the character seeing something mm-hmm. that we never see? Pulp Fiction, the biggest. But one. seeing it propel. Pulp Fiction, but it propels them forward in this story. Yeah. True Detective. True Detective. They see the video, a very similar video. Pulp Fiction, for sure. Um, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Nothing else is jumping at. I mean, uh, there's uh, two more examples. I feel like it's pretty good. It's a pretty specific. It's thing. pretty good. I just feel like I've seen it more. <laughs> you could say I Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh well, yeah, well, well, the, the view, but the viewer sees what's in the that's art, true, that's true, right? That's true. The viewer sees it. I would even say we never see Beetlejuice's scary face. Mm, only Alec point. Baldwin. Only sure. the Deetses see Beetlejuice's real face. Yeah, we never see. Fuck. Um, there's a short film called Le Fin du Monde. Is that a? It's from um the After Midnight series. You know what I'm talking about? No. The movie about the angel that's watching the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of alert. Shein Andalou for a second I was like wait that's not it <laughs> Yeah there's gotta be some more though right sure. Where the viewer doesn't see What the protagonist sees But then what they see pro- pro- like Propels them into the next mm-hmm. thing Viewers hey sound right off. in yeah, yeah sound off in those comments below If you just look below No don't look at your phone 
Look just down. Yeah. Hello, like, here we are. <laughs> We're down here. Hi. Don't look in the mirror behind your bathroom, by the way. Sound off in your mirror. <laughs> just turn your mirror around. Sound off. Yell at the symbol. We'll hear it. <laughs> it's like a transceiver, basically. <laughs> so yeah, they they break in here, and obviously it's supposed to be some kind of snuff film. He said he never wanted to show it. That was never in the cards. And I think it is a good idea to let your imagination do the heavy lifting for something like that, because totally. obviously if they like panned around and it was just like, I'm a guy in a gimp suit. And you're like, oh, that's nothing. <laughs> that means nothing to me. It's also completely thematic with the, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, quick word about this. Have you seen this? I think it's called Dark Crimes. No. This, like, it's a Polish movie, I think, starring Jim Carrey as an Eastern European detective. Excuse me? <laughs> it's a, it's a drama. It is a thriller. Have you wow. seen it? No, I've never even heard of it. I'm going to just, I'm doing a pause, like yeah. cut this out or whatever. I ha- We have to get the title right out of respect. Okay. Okay. I think it's called Dark, dude, I think it's called Dark Crimes. That's incredible. Dark Crimes, 2016. Jim Carrey as Tadic. Fuck yes. Okay. Dark Crimes, 2016. Holy Jim shit. Carrey as, what'd you say? Craddock? Crat, Tadic. Tadic. Crat, Tadic. <laughs> Cretanic, get in my office now. <laughs> yeah, loose cannon. <laughs> Take off that mask. I'm stopping you, Cretanic. Uh, that's if the if the mask was a cop. Wow. All right, so somebody uh, stop him. <laughs> yeah, please, somebody, please stop him. He shot twelve people. <laughs> Everyone has got to go see. I don't know how in the hell you see it. Wow. Dark crimes, free on Plex right it, now. Oh, beautiful fucking go watch this shit so it is about a detective who gets involved in a ring of people who make videos and do and i'm i'm, I'm using air quotes so hard the neighbors can hear it <laughs> sex weird stuff oh my god but here's the problem is they show you what the stuff is they take you to the dark sex club and just like you <laughs> said george george you nailed it it's a bunch of dudes in leather and like <laughs> girls with whips and scarves Whoa. and it's like maybe someone's tied up a little bit <laughs> like i've seen sh- <laughs> like i've seen fucking private albums on the dating apps with way worse shit than anything that's going on in dark crimes you know wow yeah and it's, it's like, the, I mean, listen, that, you got to see Dark Crimes. You got to see it. I don't know how that movie got made. Wow. He must have owed money to like the Polish mafia or something. Incredible. I don't know. I don't know. Charlotte Gainsbourg from friggin' Antichrist is in there, too. There's a sex scene. Wow. There's a one shot sex scene wow. that has full climax of Jim Carrey. I, <laughs> I, 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 di- I don't, I hate to spoil it because I That's want incredible. you to discover this on your own, but there is a, there is a, I'm very excited. There's a two shot that is a, well, sort of a two shot that is a uncut, like two minute long shot, sexing climax, Jim Carrey. Wow. It has to be seen to be believed. But it is a great example of why you don't show the weird sex crimes. Yeah. Because you're not allowed to show the kind of things that would really (laughs) motivate me to go on a murder spree, which is what Jay does. Totally true. I mean, even I have recently watched uh, Bad Lieutenant, and even in there, they're just like, they just talk about it. They're yeah. just like, here's yeah. what happened. We cannot show this on screen. <laughs> what a great fucking movie. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. It fucking blew my mind. Not to digress too hard, but I'm Jewish, and that's a very Catholic movie. And so watching the ending and really having to sit there and like think about like what I know about Catholicism and like (laughs) like, kind of bring it all together. It really fucking worked for me. I was really I love that shit. I thought it was great. Anyway, (laughs) 
<laughs> now they track him down and they beat the shit out of him and they interrogate him for information about who films it since he claims to just be the librarian. And of course, this feels very sort of like Gitmo. They're putting out cigarettes on him and shit. Very brutal sort of militaristic interrogation. Gal dips away to break into the safe and suddenly whole different vibe in the room. He says, does he know who you are? Before he gets back, I just wanted to say thanks. I'm glad to have met you. The victim says this. And Jay is really confused by this. And he had been confused about the smile on the face of the priest who also said thanks before being shot. And at the time, you just assume he's like maybe feeling guilty about his crimes or he's glad to not have to see it coming since he's told to turn around. And now that you have two people saying this, it really like the pieces start to fall into place that something is amiss in a way that you hadn't seen already. And I think that it's just such a powerful change in tone that really creates sort of a shifting base. And it's almost impossible to keep your footing after this. Absolutely. I mean, the priest saying thank you was just like a little thread pull. Mm -hmm. Like if you saw a thread hanging off someone's sweater, you might not even mention it, Mm -hmm. you know? But now it's like someone's grabbed that thread and they're running down the street with it. Yeah. And suddenly you're naked. (laughs) And this scene is incredible. It's a heightening of the what the fuck is going on vibe the story that these these killings are connected in a way you don't understand mm-hmm. it's the it's the it's the first act that really personalizes it aside from the mention of Keeve in the meeting with the client the first one that really personalizes it to jay and th- this performance of the librarian who's being tortured is fantastic mm-hmm. And this bothers Jay so much that he begins to beat this guy to death with a hammer. And right. at first we see the knee, we see the hand. We don't, we don't really see that stuff. Then he puts his head. I'm, this is, I'm going to describe it. If you have not seen the film, why, what am I talking about? I'm on a horror fucking movie podcast. I am free to be me. He holds the guy's fucking head down and beats his head open with a hammer. And this for me is one of the moments that really separates the film from the rest of the crop is the camera does not cut. Mm-hmm. And it, it it stays in the two shot. You can see Jay's full body and you see the hammer knock the skin off the guy's skull. It's a Ugh. very well done practical effect. It looks real. It feels viscerally extremely. Re- it's a very well done gag. Yeah. None of the stylization of like head exploding. <laughs> no, no, absolutely nothing like that. Th- yeah. it, this is it could be a real shot, you know? Yeah, Jay has decided this man should not be glad to have met him. <laughs> exactly. And this explosion of violence, more than killing the priest, which was almost surgical, directly mirrors his violent outbursts in the first act of the film. Definitely. At the dinner table. And here we see like, how fragile he is. And again, I th- really think this goes to like why he is the main character of this story, why the cult has done this to him. Sure. And why this movie is such a lightning rod is how fragile his state of mind is Mm -hmm. that a little bit of undermining from his wife will make that sort of social horror of destroying the dinner. A little bit of undermining from his buddy will make him lash out and wrestle him, you know, or or lash out and freak out in the house. And here, we don't even see an attack. We see an act of appreciation and respect. But it's like, I mean, for lack of a better word, I'm I'm using this in a a figurative way, not a literal way. It's gay, right? It like, it undercuts, even because even a victim is expected to act a certain way in this scenario, right? And the victim doesn't. The victim turns it around as like, 
It's so nice to meet you. Essentially saying, I love you. Thank you. Yeah. And this drives Jay so wild. Mm -hmm. He commits this just even an act of violence that even Gal, when he comes back into the kitchen a second later and sees what's happened, is is horrified by. It hasn't come out yet as I'm recording this, but the week before this episode will come out, we covered American Psycho. And there's a, a very yeah. similar scene that I think works really well where he approaches Lewis and he looks like he's going to choke him. And then he says, oh, you can't believe how long I've waited for this. And it, it just totally shifts the dynamic in a way that confuses him and infuriates him. And even though it drives him from that immediate room, he then has to go take out those violent emotions that he's yep. feeling on somebody exactly. else. Because we hate the world we're in, but we lack the tools to do anything else. Mm -hmm. We can't do it. It's like... Jay is so unhappy. He hates this, he, you know, right? But if a victim doesn't even, even if a victim isn't, not like, not like fighting back, not like fighting back, but if the victim even just doesn't play by the script, mm -hmm. it drives him insane. <laughs> he, we, we hate the world we've made for ourselves, but we cannot imagine doing anything else. Now, Wheatley himself said that he'd been inspired to do this after being surprised at the violence in The Orphanage, which he had assumed would be a subtle art house film and I had seen this movie as a young man and completely buried it in my psyche until like looking into this movie and having that terror absolutely drudged right back up. <laughs> the Orphan. Okay, you gotta remind. Is that the Guillermo del Toro movie? He produced it. He did not okay, actually okay. direct it, but yeah, it's. I mean, it like the lady goes into the house that she grew up in, and there's all these ghosts of kids who were killed there, and. All kinds of like fucked up faces and a scary mask and stuff. And genuinely, it scared me so bad that I completely like repressed that this movie existed until looking into their research. That's an okay twist. I kind of like that twist. It was pretty good. And uh, I might have to go revisit this movie because I genuinely remember it being absolutely terrifying. You, you could cut that out too. I hate to spoil a great horror movie for, just to just announce yeah, the ending. I'll, leave, like that. I'll leave just the tease part. It's only 2007. Yeah, it's not a, that far. Wow, why do I feel that's more recent? Wow, 2007. So he was he had just seen this movie. <laughs> yeah, and he was like, that fucking rules. <laughs> yeah, like he just got the brand new like yeah. HD DVD of it. He specifically says that like 20 minutes in, there's like a, a like corpse that gets all mangled and everything. They show it happen, and then it like walks away, and he's like, oh, they won't show the corpse again because it's fucking disgusting. And then the camera cuts back and just like hangs on it. And he said that it made the movie unpredictable. That once you set up that this can happen, you never know if it will happen again or if something of a similar severity will happen again. And he wanted to do something similar. So I found this quote where he told Starburst magazine, hopefully not the candy, but who knows? <laughs> hey, it's forward about Starburst and Starburst lovers. Yeah, I guess he's uh, one of the Starburst lovers because this quote didn't actually relate to the candy, but he said it was always in the script that it would be pretty hard. I think there's a few things going on. These characters get money for murdering people and you want to see them doing it. You can't paper over what murder is. You've got to take it seriously. When you see violence, you can't flinch from it. Also, the film isn't that violent, really. It's not like Hostel or any of those movies. In those films, you don't feel all that scared about the violence. The hammer scene, you feel in the lead up that it's going to cut away, and then it mm -hmm. doesn't. Mm -hmm. The scene doesn't talk in the language of horror cinema or action cinema, but with a health and safety video or snuff. If you bash somebody's head in with a hammer, it doesn't explode like it would in a horror film. It's something more muted. That's what's scary about it. 
It happens 45 minutes into the movie at the halfway mark, and you realize somebody you like, his job is pretty horrific. (laughs) He's underselling it there, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, these guys are not, they're they're not podcasters, that's for sure. (laughs) I I couldn't tell you the last time I had to knock someone's scalp off their skull with a hammer. Uh, Yeah, me neither. Uh. (laughs) I listen, those Blue Apron guys got it coming, we all know it. Now, Gal, when he was in the safe, as well as the uh, like a big pile of money, there was also a folder with the symbol oh, of the cult right. yes. tucked away in there. He doesn't look at it yet, but it will come back. And the next one, Jay is clearly still shaken. He's kind of gone off the rails here. After his 20 minutes are up, Gal goes in after him, and he finds he not only shot a man and his dog, but he's also absolutely brutalizing someone in the back. This dude's face is so fucked up, and his little twitch... When he gets thrown to the ground and you're like, oh, he's still a little bit alive. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, it really is like a gut punch. The sequence is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's extremely well done. It's Ben Wheatley at his best. After the sequence of Gal, like walking through the chambers looking for him. And you're not, I mean, I don't know, for me, rewatching it, I, maybe there was some dialogue that explained what was going on, but I mm-hmm. didn't fucking hear it. So it just like cuts to this thing of, you know, you know they're going to find like the other people responsible. That's who filmed it, I think, is the is the idea. Aha. Uh-huh. Another example of jay going way overboard he's got something to prove he's got to enact this his own narrative he can't just do the thing right and this flies in the face of gal wanting him to be a clean operator still like that's that would be him doing the good thing is by like being quiet and dispatching them but he can't because he's got nothing he has to build his identity with whatever's around right like in the way a hermit crab will move into a medicine bottle (laughs) right and They start burning some evidence, and Jay says that he used to love looking at fires as a kid. This is immediately following that. And again, like with the cat bringing the fucking food, and does it just like killing, or is it trying to provide for the family? Similarly here, Jay is like the fire. You know, he's barely being reined in, seconds from losing control at any moment, and clearly very dangerous, even if you like hanging out with it, having a campfire or anything. The minute you forget that it's fire. Yeah, it's it's just a monster process enacting itself into the world. Right. Fire is such a great metaphor for this sort of the, the you know, what Freud, God damn it. <laughs> I, I Hold on, I have to, I promise myself that if I use the phrase, what blank would call blank anything, I would have to kill myself. So. <laughs> Well, we had a good run. Fine. We had a good run, folks. Uh, well, some of us did. I, you know, speak for yourself. Uh, mediocre for me. No, I mean, like this is the death drive, right? Mm. This is just like this mindless pattern, just enacting itself from a, a place of oblivion, not from any sort of conscious drive. Yeah. And I love that line. I love that fire line so much because it's also like, well, things were better when I was a kid. It, it's on so many levels, right? It's like, yes, Jay is this fire just burning through the world. He's also the thing that's being burned by the fire that we right. know, both as a person alive at that time with no nothing to do other than just be batted about like a, an animal by these like giant forces that he doesn't understand but also i enjoyed this thing when i was a kid but not anymore which is another moment of like collapse and decline sure. absolutely th- th- there was this golden age and we don't have access to it anymore definitely and you can sort of see it as like an age of innocence where he in addition to not having all of the pressures not having to function in that world, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. people take care of you when you're that age and you can do things like admire the fire. Hey, George, you know, gosh, I'm thinking, you know, who still likes fire? Who's that? The cult. Oh, you know, who takes care of each other. Who's that? That cult does. Oh, could it be? Seem like pretty, pretty good folks. If you ask me. Oh, making a lot of good points here. Uh, you know, I'm just, just hey, saying I'm, I'm not, I'm not totally convinced yet. That's fine. We'll see. We'll see. 
I love this shot that follows it up as well, where he's staring out of the window. It's just in a really cool angle, like the way that it is a little bit of a wider move. But he also sees someone waving at him from the darkness. What the heck is Fiona? And you can also see like his reflection on the window, but it's just like a shadow version of himself. It looks really <laughs> fucking course, cool. Yeah. And this is another point, another thing where the, the, the sort of two camps of interpretation divide. One camp says, well, this is Fiona's a witch and she's casting a spell or she's, a, this is a dream and she's appearing in his dream mm-hmm. or that she's traveled. She's following him and she has traveled there and is there to see him. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would say, no. <laughs> <laughs> This is just imagery heightening. Sure. Yeah. I do like, though, that it can kind of work in a few different ways. Oh, totally. You know, she stole the bloody, like, she has his blood. Who knows what she's doing with Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. But when he's dropped off at home the next morning, Fiona is there having wine with Shell at his place. And he's all rashy and nasty now because the wound on his hand is all infected. This really reminded me of uh, Rosemary's Baby. Mm. A great fucking movie. Hell yeah. That's also about a cult, you know, sort of insinuating themselves in, in, in someone's life yeah. via like a uh, forced social awkwardness. So I, I and I thought they did it great. Yeah. You can tell that I'm growing as a person because I came so close to attempting an impression of the old lady from that movie and then stopped. Oh, Ruth, what's her name? <laughs> oh, what's, what's her fucking last name? She's a dream. It's She's so fucking good in that movie that I don't even want to do her the disservice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> trying. Me and the Rude Tales of Magic cast, we're just talking about our favorite film performances. Mm-hmm. And Ruth Gordon, is that her name? That sounds very correct. Well, that could be it. Is that, is that a Batman character? No. <laughs> That's Barbara Gordon. Yeah, it is Ruth right. Gordon. Ruth Gordon and Branson Reese, the DM, uh, the, the host of Rude Tales of Magic, said, Ruth Gordon, Rosemary's Baby. Amazing. One of the greatest film performances. Yeah. Definitely amazing. Former best horror movie ever made. So yeah. <laughs> Up until Kill List. Up until, up until Kill List. He goes to see a doctor about his hand. It's not the usual guy. And the doctor is like, it's fine. Just live in the moment. <laughs> like, okay. That's not really good medical doctor advice. <laughs> But it's great because it's, I mean, the movie, the movie is in real full swing now. I mean, this is, God, if I'm going to be an absolute asshole about it, you'd have to say that either him seeing Fiona, no, I think he meets the goddess. Yeah, no, no, no. His next meeting with the client when they try to quit is meeting Mm. the goddess. That's, that's got to be the six six o'clock point on the story circle. But now we are like, we are fully in the dark forest. The cult is in complete control and the the movie is not going to let us ever go back to the regular world. Exactly. And especially it's this illusion is shattered completely when even the idea that they're in the ones sort of operating on the same level as the client. Because Gal looks into the folder that he took and sees photos of them watching the people <laughs> that they were supposed to be killing. Mm-hmm. And there's a file on Keeve as well. So there's like they are fully aware of everything that's going on. Yeah. And Gal says they had pictures of Jay and Gal at the priest's house. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, th- like they were watching them watch people. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's going several layers deep. And so he heads over to Jay's. And he finds that they're dealing with someone having killed and hung up their cat in front of the house. Jeez Louise. Mm-hmm. Gal wants to quit the job since they got the extra money from the safe. But Jay says that he's going to finish what he started. And importantly, that he thinks that they deserve it. That he feels like he is getting self-fulfillment out of this job. And so they go to the client 
you know, is surrounded by people this time. They go to talk to him and they say, hey, we want to quit. And he threatens the boys and their families when Gal asks if they can stop. And this is when he says, your cogs in the reconstruction. Yeah. And and it's just a really powerful scene. You know, you can see as cool an operator as Gal has been this entire time. He is very nervous in that meeting. It's great. <laughs> Fucking Smiley knocks it out of the goddamn park. He's so George, good in this It's movie. so funny. This is just, you've got to give it up for Ben and Amy just wrote a killer script. Mm-hmm. I love the script. I love the way it looks. The way it's shot is genius. The performances are unparalleled mm-hmm. in any movie like it. The script fucking rules. Yeah. I might be wrong. I might be simplifying it a little too much, but it's like the opening five or like three to six lines go like this. Michael Smiley is like, so uh, we'd like to quit and we'll even find someone who looks like us to do the job for you. (laughs) And the guys are like, no, you can't. And they're like, well, what happens if we just fuck off? And the client's like, you will die and your entire families will die. And then Michael Smiley says, so no wiggle room on that then? <laughs> and it's, but it's not the way, the way I just did it sounds like a Marvel movie soy banter bullshit. But the way fucking Mike Smiley does it, it's great. It's perfect. Yeah, it is. It really does feel like a truly desperate, terrified person saying something halfway between a realization and a joke yeah. that does not undercut like the perform you could perform that in a way where it undercuts the moment but the way he does it it doesn't it's like you can his mouth is saying it his eyes are dead it's a great performance right and you can see how it in a way that it doesn't feel like with let's say a marvel movie or something or rather it feels more like he is using it as like a defense mechanism oh 100 he is used to being the, the wisecracking one and so if he can like get some kind of human emotion out of them, get them to laugh at maybe a joke that then they'll say, oh, we're all actually just having a good time. You you crazy kids could get yeah. out of here. And the movie gets to get away with it mm-hmm. because it's already established it will fuck you up. Yes. So, it, like, you know, Marvel, so when Thanos is like, I'm going to kill half the people because I <laughs> want everyone to have more resources. Sure, he's John Wayne now. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. I've been working on that. My Ruth, Here's my Ruth Gordon. I'm going to kill half the people so everybody has more resources. Pilgrim. <laughs> Drink the special milk I gave you for your baby, Rosemary. <laughs> I, this, oh, God, it's like he's here. Uh, the, the, like Marvel, Iron Man says shit like that. And it's like, you can get away with it because we know he's not going to fucking die. We know he's safe. Well, bad one to pick for that. Well, no, because <laughs> right, right, because like right before he dies, he doesn't do soy banter. Mm, he true. actually does like the heroic, like right. sell, like I'm uh, ready the, to die. the uh, assertion of the ego. <laughs> yes, you know, you know, which which is which is Marvel asserting itself, mm-hmm. saying that don't worry, nothing will change. The good guys will win. <laughs> but in but but that is what that line is. Sure, I yeah, am, yeah, you know, yeah. you are literally saying I th- that line in that movie. I am Iron Man. Is Marvel saying I'm Marvel? Yeah. Don't worry. You're in our capable hands. We know exactly what we're doing. It's a great line because it works in such a meta way for them. Also pitched on set by one of the lighting guys, probably unpaid for writing the most memorable line in any fucking Marvel movie. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, can you imagine the screenwriters are sitting there being like, I don't know what to say. Fuck (laughs) off. Fuck you, you fucking idiots. What are you doing writing movies? (laughs) Fucking Russo. Anyway, but but fucking you get to you you get to give Mike Smiley lines like that in Kill List because the movie is established. Number one, you never know what's going to happen and it, it will be graphic and horrible. And so he gets to say that shit because there's no way you can undercut that. Yeah. That line does not undercut anything, and so it works. 
Yeah. It is all soy banter is a cargo cult of actual lines like this in movies like this. Yeah. And that's why I fucking love that scene. It's really great. It's really great. Shell takes their son on vacation to hide and they go off to do this job. I love this line where Gal says, it's not right. One man living and all that. And Jay turns to him and says, none of it's right, Gal. That's why we're here. Great. Fuck, dude. (laughs) It's just the movie just hitting the chorus, you know? Yeah. Yeah. While they're waiting to attack the MP, they hear a slow drumbeat from the woods. This fucking rules. Yes. This fucking rules. Every time I rewatch this movie at this part, I, I yell at my wife, like, get in here. Look at this. Watch this. <laughs> it leads them to a bunch of people carrying torches, walking in various states of undress and wearing crazy straw masks. And this ritual begins and someone steps forward and sacrifices themselves by hanging to some very polite applause. (laughs) They're like, golf clap for this lady. Even on the captions, it says polite applause. (laughs) It does. True. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. Well, I nailed it then. Yeah. And uh, she was also covered in a dress made of money. Hmm. Now, Ben said, the cult is pretty loosely defined. We didn't do any research intentionally. My underlying thinking comes out of the very little bit of research we did do about sacrifices. If crops fail, you have to sacrifice something or someone, and it placates the gods. So if the cult is like a very baseline original religion, and their new rituals are all around money. And so you can see how here capitalism can have infected paganism. And so it is shedding all of the modern institutions that might pull people away from it. In order to make England great again, no more priests talking about driving camels through the eyes of needle, no more socialist politics, no more understanding history via libraries, get rid of your families. Everything should be about getting us out of this recession, stimulating the economy, and and the people who are pulling the levers are going to do whatever it takes. It's incredible. I mean, like it's like they saw the future. Yeah. They, just, they, they just saw the next decade with this movie, and mm-hmm. it's incredible. Jay opens fire with his rifle and the cult attacks. Against Gal's wishes. Very true. Very Gal's true. like, what the fuck are you doing? We're <laughs> outnumbered. Don't do it. It's loud. Yeah. No, but just like all the other times, he's got something to prove. Yeah. Can't be controlled. And I, it's so scary because you're like, for them to have so little regard for their own lives and like clearly be approaching guns with just knives and stuff. But to have no fear about it, like they're not even approaching trepidatiously. They're no. running directly at them. The leader, the leader hears gunshots, turns towards Jay and Gal and out switches his hands and lets himself be shot. Yeah, exactly. And so they run into some underground passages. Gal's shotgun is very helpful in these close quarters, but he's rushed. <laughs> Great so tactical much. note, George. <laughs> Great. If anyone's ever thinking about what weapons to choose for a close quarters combat cult chasing you through sewer tunnels beneath yeah. an English country estate. <laughs> Well, hey, if, if you're scouting out already, you know you're going to be in those tunnels. Bring a shotgun is all I'm saying. <laughs> They're professionals. But he's rushed enough and he gets stabbed and slashed in his legs and his guts and they're all pouring out and everything. R.I.P. our pal Gal after Jay has to put him out of his misery. And it's interesting, of course, that he also says thanks right before getting shot. Mm-hmm. What the hell does that mean, bro? Could be that he's in on it. Could be that he's just in a ton of pain. And again, it sort of works in this nebulous logic area where it doesn't need to have actually picked a side. The fact that it's asking, forcing me to ask those questions means that it's succeeding. 
Jay goes back home and he collects his family, but suddenly the cult is standing on their yard with torches and it kind of like turns into straw dogs. And Jay freaks out and goes after them, but gets knocked out from behind. And Shell is defending the house when suddenly a new title card, the Hunchback. And now that he's been captured by the cult, Jay gets a mask and he's forced into one-on-one combat with the aforementioned Hunchback, easily dispatching them with a knife. And the gang all claps again, including the lady who has thorns around her eyes. I don't even know how she saw it. What are you looking at? (laughs) A note for Ben? Yeah. Amy, talk some sense into Ben. Come on. She had problems with the logo at the beginning, but not with this lady who's got thorns piercing out her eyes. George, you know, like, you hear other people clap, you just clap. You ever fallen asleep in a play before? It it happens all the time. They finally collapse, though, and it's revealed to be Shell and their son under there, disguised by the cult, who takes off their masks to reveal Fiona, the client, and the doctor. I thought it was funny. Mayana was pissed that she didn't actually get to be under there, she said in the commentary. It was apparently some assistant from the finance department. <laughs> like doing, like, B-team shoots? Like, yeah. Who being the like, one actually wearing the sheet? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, really? Yeah. Well, I'm surprised. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense. But uh, yeah, surprised. She was sad about it. She wanted to be the one under there. You can tell she's fun in the movie. It's yeah. it's great. Yeah. Also, a lot of like she's all like for, if you haven't seen the film, she's just unbelievably like traditionally hot, mm-hmm. uh, and hot people like that don't really usually get the chance to play those parts in movies like this. You yeah. know, not to again throw it back to American Psycho, but when they asked Brett Easton Ellis, like, why do you think that so many people who were attached to this movie before Christian Bale was attached? were like teen idol types like Leonardo DiCaprio and and Johnny Depp. And he said that I think that it's kind of an atypical role for a leading man who usually gets shoved into either like action or romance roles and they get to look good. Like you have to look good for that role, but then also you get to subvert it in a way that like you show the ugliness inside and everything. And I really love Shell. I think that she's such a great character because she is fully engaged in the decisions like, it's not like like Breaking Bad, where there's time where he's hiding and sneaking around behind her back before she no. finds out. Well, it's based on Ben and Amy, who, you know, we should, did we, did we say this before? Like, she doesn't, she's not just his writing partner. Like, they've talked about it in an interview. Well, she, the, the thing is, she hates press. Mm. So they decided that he would be the face of it, but they, they consider themselves as co filmmakers. Sure. The Peter Jackson approach. Is that true? Does he yeah. have a, see, see I his didn't wife know. wife as well. Yeah. There I had go. no idea. But yeah, so. You know, and I, uh, I'm i sure that they must have modeled it on their own relationship. Yeah. And it was also funny that in the commentary, they were talking about how he hadn't considered that considering how much of this was based on their relationship, how this killing of them might reflect poorly on him as a father. And we should, we should say <laughs> one of the most important, one of the most divisive details mm-hmm. here. In the, and we're about to get to the the big device one which is that right after the thing you described is the title card fucking pops up yeah. and it's the end of the fucking movie right well yeah she she laughs as the two of them she finally laughs. die yes a very important detail and jay he gets crowned by the cult having now killed his best friend son and wife and ben said at the very end the movie where a bad man wins a hat <laughs> she laughs and this, you know, a lot of people have interpreted her last sort of words being laughter as she was in on it. 
that Shell was in on it with the cult the entire time. I think that's I think you really got to bend over backwards to to come to that sort of interpretation right. of it. I agree. I they also they mentioned that this gets brought up to them and that they are like she's just like a keen appreciator of the ironic and that this is not a plan a mother would ever have. <laughs> yeah, she's laughing so, because she's in hell. I mean, right. it's a, you know, it's <laughs> Yeah. It's exactly. a Tim Curry in the third act of the shadow laugh. <laughs> just it's a laugh of madness. Yeah, and I I love the lack of ending. I love that it just like cuts on him feeling fucking miserable. <laughs> I think it's so great. And Ben said some people say I could see the ending coming. And he was apparently testy when he said that. And he said, and I'm like, well, what do you want? Did you see the ending of Jaws coming? Did you know the shark would die? Do you get a special badge for that? You're not better than the filmmakers just because you could read (laughs) it. That's not the point. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And the ending was very divisive for people. But I think that the ending is really what makes it great. And it's, it's what makes it the best horror film of all time. Well, that's another perfect segue, Taylor. God damn, my man is killing it tonight because we're now at the part of the episode where we sum up why it's not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. All right. Four reasons. Number one, the way it approaches reactionary male violence and ties that to war and the social destruction of family life and the social fabric. I think that's great. The way they ground it, the big arc of that for me is that, and and this is also, every element of this movie just, I think, works fantastically together. So we always see that, like, he's always trying to prove something after the fact. Yeah. Right? Cat kills the rabbit. Wife says, gross. He's like, oh, you think it's gross? Well, I'm going to go over and beyond. I'm going to do this nuts thing. And then he, and then he does it again when he kills the, when he tortures the librarian with a hammer. And then he goes and he kills the, 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 the snuff filmmakers. Just horrific. Another great scene with practical effects, by the way. The, the, the pulverized face of that guy looks Ugh. great Ugh. for a cheap, for an under million dollar movie. Just, yeah. it looks fantastic. I think, I think the I chase agree. sequence is great. Uh, going overboard. It's always, but it's always after the fact. And it, I think this is heightened when he's watching them sacrifice the woman in the money dress is that he just he sits there and watches them do it and it's only after she dies that he says oh well that's enough mm-hmm. right so what we're seeing that like he's not his his motivations are this sort of poison performative motivation yeah. he doesn't act to stop the horror from occurring his only act is to perform his identity by retroact you know by then acting after the fact as a show of what he believes not as an agent to actually affect change in the world right so then we have to act well is he a subject of this like late capitalist post-war confusion haze or has something is something in him preventing because he could have stopped that sacrifice and didn't and then in the final act of sacrifice Mm. in the one moment where he should be the most angry should be the most reactive when he realizes that he has been made to kill his wife and child nothing wow and you can read that a lot of ways You can read that in that finally, after having truly lost everything, he is naked without a family or friend, right? The social shreds that he had have finally been, the last shreds have been taken away. And now, only now that he has lost everything, is he ready for reconstruction to be made new, right? The second way to look at it is, well, there's no audience for his performance. Who is he performing for? The gal's dead. His wife's not there. 
And we see that his entire ego was a social construct meant to convince himself of who he was mm-hmm. and not really a natural, spontaneous, awake being in the world making choices. And so that now, and now, even, even, even in the second way, it ends fantastically because now he is this sort of blank slate whose core reactionary mechanic has been taken away. Right. And the, boom, title card. So I, I love the way it deals with like that, that sort of male sense and the, the, the sort of performative violence and things like that. That's number one. Number two, I think that, and I'll talk more about this later, but I think that, actually, no, I'll switch it around. Number two is the way this movie captures the feeling of lack of control and confusion that is dominant in our ideology and our society, but especially in that moment of three years after 2008, London's about to burn down in riots, you know, all this sort of going on, this unmooredness perfectly mirrored by the Lovecraft, right? perfectly mirrored by the cult. And Lovecraft does this as well, that he, he kind of has his cake and eats it too. So the cult is scary because there are people doing scary, violent things speaking languages you don't understand, right? They're the other, but like the true capital O other, like the old ones are other, right? right. Village style others. Yeah, yeah. But also the, you know, and Lovecraft doesn't get into this as much, but it, it's in there. Like they're right. The cults are right. And what do I mean by that? I mean that like the certainty of the cult in recognizing the old ones is at least a step ahead of where everyone else is at mm-hmm. that still can't wrap their minds around that thing they saw in the basket on the doorstep, sure. right? Yeah. The cults might be wrong and like, can't, well, you, you can't please these forces. <laughs> you know, you can't bend these forces to your will. But the cults are, you have to give it to them. <laughs> you do have to hand it to the evil cults. <laughs> you gotta give them this. You must. At least it's you an gotta ethos. Gotta give it to. At them. least it's an ethos. They do have a sense of meaning and purpose and knowledge about what's going on that is ahead of the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And in this case, and I love that they kept the the cult very vague. And I also read that in an earlier version of the script, the audience is led on on why the cult is doing some of these things, and that that was cut out of the script at a later stage. Now I think that was a brilliant move. Mm-hmm. That is like the not showing the shark until. The second act, right? I mean, that is smart. Keeping it vague is better. It works better thematically because we don't, the specifics don't fucking matter. The specifics don't matter. And I'm going to talk more about that on point four. But specifics don't matter. Everybody wants to give specifics. They don't matter. The point is that by showing the cult confident and in control, it highlights how the rest of us are not. Mm. It And in that moment where, you know, 2008 really revealed Something that people had not had to confront in a long time, which is that the old ones don't fucking care about you, mm-hmm. right? You look back and it's like all the crises in the West, the economic, political war, there's some sort of story there. There's some excuse that the ruling class gave that was roughly believable. And then if you get back to what we are told is the or crisis of the West, which is World War II, right? Then England and America, oh, baby. Fucking, fucking, you know, <laughs> Superman coming in to save him the goddamn day. Yeah. And then, you know, and FDR's got the New Deal, which defines American, you know, political ideology for at least one generation. We get it for a few decades until it's it's destroyed in the 70s. Oh. <laughs> England gets to like the, 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 the Thatcherite Reagan, you know, world a little, a little sooner. Thatcher's a, a little while before Reagan. 
they get to it first, but they still, you know, this era of where, well, things made sense and, and good things can happen. And that sort of buys credit for the ruling class for two more generations, right? <laughs> right? And because like Vietnam, it's like, well, okay, we fucked up on Vietnam, but look, here's the explanation. Right. Uh, and hey, we eventually got out. You know, the people had their way. It was lasted longer than we thought. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Korea got to fight communism, you know, uh, all these things. And then the, the 90s come and then the, you know, well, the 80s happen. It's like, well, now, wait a minute. Now, look, <laughs> you know, uh, hey, look, we know that some things are bad, but just, you know, you got to let it work itself out. The meritocracy and capitalism will fix it. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's sure. got a fucking story. Sure. And then you get the, what was the fucking, um, the British prime minister's name that was uh, Tony Blair. Blair to thank you so much. Then you get the Clinton and the Blairites, right? right. Then you get Surplus, the third one. baby. Yeah, yeah. So the ruling class says, all right, well, here's the new left. And there's <laughs> all it, it's the right. Yeah. <laughs> all, that's all it is. <laughs> it's that's it. That's it. That's mm-hmm. the third way thing is just, well, we got everybody wants a new flavor of the same horse shit. Yeah. So then we live with that. And but then 2008, this is why 2008 is so important. 2008 comes is a finally. We get a real, so even, even 9-11, even 9-11, what a great story, attacked by God. We're not going to talk about what we've been doing to the Middle East. For, <laughs> you know, we're not going to talk about how the CIA created Al-Qaeda. Right. We're not going to talk about any of that. We're not going to talk about who actually paid for it. We're not, we're not, but hey, we're going to, you know, we got to stick together, all this shit, and it fucking worked. Mm-hmm. But then you get these wars. And they drag on and on, and there's no weapons of mass destruction. Afghanistan is a fucking open grave, a literal open grave and a figurative open grave of the, once again, the intentions of empire wrecked on the rocks of uh, the Kandahar Valley. And, And then 2008 comes, and this is the test. Right. This is the next big test that the old, we're going to ask God yet again, do you love us or not? And God says no, and there's no story. There's nothing. Yeah. A massive, huge, massive cultural failure. God has hated us before, but this time God didn't even bother to lie to us to say that he loved us, right? <laughs> this, so this is 2008 is a Lovecraft moment because it is truly revealed. And we need events to show, we need events. We can't just be a way of being. We have to have isolated, explosive events to illustrate to us these structures. And 2008 was such an event, and it was an event where really the mask came off and we all learned, fuck. Cthulhu just like batting a city away mm-hmm. with his foot walking somewhere else you don't understand. Like we're not, we're not even bugs because, you know, sometimes I'll pay attention to a bug. They don't, they don't give a fuck. They yeah. don't even care about lying to us anymore. And so we really find ourselves in the modern world, right? Which, and I would argue that our little chapter of the modern world really began in 2008, not 2011, 2008. Yeah. Because 2011, they still had their stories going, going, right? Right. right? 2008, we are now at the first full event in a world with no narrative. And that is cosmic horror. That is the feeling that Lovecraft was going for. When we think about the vastness of the old ones and colors we don't understand, shapes that don't seem to make any sense, that bone deep feeling of not knowing the truth of anything including yourself mm-hmm. is a state of horror and this movie captures that feeling like a lightning rod captures lightning and that's why it's so good it could have been made in any other year the fact that it was made the same year the london riots happened is fantastic but it is a new kind of lovecraft because it's people in the mouth of madness you need these beings from another dimension event horizon you have to pass through the hell dimension There has to be some sort of supernatural thing. Lovecraft ran into this as well. Lovecraft didn't know how to talk about this without using magic, without using something of the real, true, outside, the extra, the alien, the capital A, alien. What 
we realized in Cthulhu world, in Lovecraft world post-2008, is that you can achieve that fact just with people. You can do it just with people. And like Kafka understood this. You don't need a big monster to make you feel like a bug. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even just talking about the, the metamorphosis. Look at the trial, the castle. I mean, this is someone who understood how you can get to this realization. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my, he's getting shuffled around by the forces of government. Abs- absolutely. And, like- and that's why I think the cult is perfect for this, because it references that Lovecraftian language, but with no specifics and no supernatural business, I would say you don't need supernatural explanation for the film, that we are able to see now we are in this Cthulhu world. <laughs> But with no Cthulhu, with just ourselves. We did it to our fucking selves. Baby's got the goddamn bends. And the final reason, the final fucking reason this is the greatest horror movie ever made, is the ending. These motherfuckers that want to show you found footage of demons in houses. I love paranormal activity so much. I think it fucking (laughs) rules. I love them. But fuck them. And fuck all the Blumhouse shitheads and everybody who in. The goddamn second act of the movie brings in a demon expert. Mm -hmm. You know how you and your friends are always calling the local demon expert at the community college? Of course. I'm actually the demon expert. Oh, so you so you have a book that has a list of demons and a little woodcut insert picture of theirs that says the demon's name is Abraxamax. Oh, he's a bad one. Oh, he comes to families who didn't invest in crypto early enough and he's gonna get them. Damn you, Abraxamax. (laughs) You know, and it's just like, here's an explanation and here's the rule set. And it's like, I get it structurally. You need it. Everybody likes to have a rule set when the heroes fight the bad guy. I get, I totally understand. But I will reference a great Stephen King short story called The Finger. Moving Finger? What is it? Moving Finger? You know the one? I think it's either in Skeleton Crew or Nightmares and Dreamscapes about a guy who just hears a rustling in his bathroom one day. And he goes in there and there's a long finger like with like 20 joints. Like a human index finger that has come out of his bathroom sink drain and is just feeling around the bathroom. Oh. Oh, I hate that. Now, I'm not going to tell you what happens because it doesn't matter. But I will tell you this. It is never in that short story explained where the finger comes from. Love that. Why it's there, what it is. Nothing. Hell nothing. Yeah. And he wrote in an essay, I, I think in some like later edition of the short story, he you know, it included like an afterword for all the stories. I will also say that Night Shift, getting, a, getting an old paperback of Night Shift was a huge influence on me. Yikes. <laughs> Fucking loved it. I, Stephen King short stories are still some of the best things you can read. And he, he talks about it. He's like, he was like, I just think it's scarier if you don't know why anything happens. And he's right. He's fucking he's right, He's right. He is right. He is right. The second you tell me the rules about your fucking demon, your movie becomes a slasher movie. Yeah, right. Fuck you. That's not scary. Like a, a guy being mean. Right. The unknown is the scary part. Now, look. Halloween is great. Like, yeah, there are some things that are good, and I appreciate the Scream films to a certain degree, but I will never think that they are as scary as the alien from The Thing. Sure. Which, you know, and like, even in that movie, they think they understand it, they do not. It is still unknown and terrifying. Mm-hmm. But this movie, it does not explain anything to you, and it fucking doesn't. Oh, yeah. And the fact that it ends where it does, with such a fuck you to the audience, <laughs> is good. It's not, it's not a fuck you like a bully, it's a fuck you of like a coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, get up and do it again. We're doing sprints, goddammit. <laughs> because that's the way it is, dog. Mm-hmm. That is the way it fucking is. The point is that there is no ending. The point is that it doesn't make sense. The point is that you are being batted around by these cults and these bankers and all these people, all these motherfuckers hiring you and firing you 
and worshiping money and chasing you through tunnels and leaving shit on your doorstep constantly. And there's nothing you can fucking do about it because you can't wake up. Boom. Love that. That was incredible. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because- I got him! I got him! The cult was right. The cult cult can do no wrong. All cults are good. You can quote me on that. You must give it up to the cult. (laughs) You gotta hand it to those cults. (laughs) To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think that it really illustrates lack of clarity versus ambiguity. Ambiguity is when the questions that are asked are interesting, and lack of clarity is when the questions asked are stupid. (laughs) And, And I think that this absolutely knocks it out of the park on that ambiguity aspect in that I do not feel cheated by not having answers. Getting to play with the elements that are ambiguous is part of the fun of this movie. It's getting to sit there and say, well, maybe there is some evidence for them being in on it. Let me go back to it and check it out. And like them saying thanks or laughing at like the fact that people come to these different interpretations, I think speaks really highly to the movie and the way Mm. that it handles ambiguity. I also think that it's spectacular because it's a great example of the medium being the message as well. You know, I think that the movie, the way that it's shot totally reflects Jay's mental state, the bobbing intimate handheld camera, the cult symbol at the beginning, the frantic editing feeling like how a day really works. It totally amplifies what we're seeing on screen through the actual look of the movie in a way that is really difficult to achieve, especially when you're working with low budget and you maybe have to just be like, all right, we can really only get one shot with this. So just stick the camera there and everybody has to hit their marks. Exactly. They talked in the commentaries. There were no marks. And so when the cameraman is having to get up within them, if they didn't have someone of that skill, this movie falls apart. It feels mm-hmm. like crap. There's gigantic gaps between everybody. And instead, you get this really intimate feeling that comes along with being friends with somebody. And the performances, I mean, we gushed about them at the beginning, but the naturalism that comes from this script that then gets repeated and uh, improvised over creates such an incredible dynamic between the entire group. I love the actual performances. Michael Smiley is so fucking good in this movie. He rules. (laughs) He is truly incredible. Not to diminish anyone else's performances because they are all fantastic. So good. But the fact that he stands out in a sea of incredible performances, I think is, is absolutely the truth. And I just love a movie that is able to successfully navigate dream logic. I love this whole idea of the negative capability that I mentioned earlier and not feeling like you need to engage with the most concrete logic is, I think, one of the most confident things that an artist can do. And trusting the audience to pick up on what you're trying to put down is a great sign of of interest in in your own work as well, saying that you think that there is people out there for it who are going to actually put work into it, who are going to work at getting something out of it because there is something there. It's just incredible. It's it's dreamlike. It's violent. It's shocking. It's it's the best horror movie ever made. I'm so glad you liked it. Yeah. I know the bit of the show is that it's the best movie, but also I'm so glad <laughs> I made you watch it that you liked it. I really did. Yeah. Ben Wheatley is such an interesting director. 
The last thing I heard about him was that he, and by heard, I mean, I read it two hours ago, <laughs> was that he was going to direct the new Tomb Raider movie. And it got canceled because, I know, and it got canceled because it was going into production at the start of COVID. Oh. Uh, and I saw, I gotta say, I saw his COVID project. Rebecca. No. Oh. Uh, in the Earth. Oh, because oh, Rebecca yes. Rebecca came out during COVID, but I'm That's pretty right. sure they made that beforehand because it looks like a normal movie. Right. In the Earth is, is definitely like a. Here are the movies people are making during the COVID pandemic when they're right. not allowed to talk or be around each other. <laughs> I wasn't crazy about it, but it did just make me crave more classic Wheatley. I would love for him. I hope he stays in the genre and doesn't get completely absorbed by the big studio video game movie machine. Right. I hope him and Amy write more weird, scary culty crime thriller comedies yeah. i hope it is it so good hell yeah i'm in complete agreement you know at the very least even the ones that i have not enjoyed from him i must respect as a huge artistic swing and he is absolutely doing what he wanted to do in those movies and just because it didn't connect for me on that watch is no slight against it just didn't just didn't hit my taste so uh check if you liked this movie go check out a field in England as well. Who am I to stop you? <laughs> <laughs> and sightseers and down terrace. Yeah, hell yeah. That was a ton of fun, Taylor. Why don't you tell the folks where they can check out the rest of your work? Oh, George, ah, oh, you beautiful host. Thank you so much for having me. Follow me on Twitter at Taylor.biz. And you can find me either being on or producing many, many fun actual play or fiction podcast, however you want to think about it. <laughs> As we discussed before, categories and genres, get them out of here. You can find me at or on Oh These, Those Stars of Space. That's one. And then Rude Tales of Magic or, hey, why not try Fun City? That's me. Hit them all, folks. As far as my plugs, oh my god, come on, Stevie. Get out of here, duck. <laughs> throw her off three times now. It's your cat? Yeah. Ah, bring anything fun to eat? No. Oh, wait. There's a rabbit back there, actually. Huh. <laughs> you wouldn't eat it. Don't be gross. Well, not yet. Not raw. But I'm going to take it down there. I'll cook it up with an onion. Oh, no, you're showing me. I got I'm to so admit. I'm so manly. <laughs> you got to hand it to the rabbit-eating man. <laughs> Cults and men eating rabbits braver than the troops. That's the new theme song <laughs> for the show, I think. God damn. <laughs> yeah. Creative Commons. Take it. <laughs> Yeah, as far as my plugs, you can find me at Little Horror PHL on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, pretty much everywhere. Uh, it's also the Patreon that you can go check out, where you can find all kinds of fun bonus episodes about things that maybe don't fit as squarely into best horror movie ever made, but definitely merit discussion. If you're here as a fan of Taylor's, you're probably also a fan of Branson Reese. And he uh, not only has a fun main feed episode, but also came back on the Patreon to talk about the 13 best animated horror shorts from 1929 oh. to 1953. Whoa. Yes. Right? Come on. Who says wow. no to that? <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> Call me Frazier, because I'm listening. All kinds of really fun stuff over there. We just most recently talked to Michael Swaim from Cracked about Synecdoche, New York. Another really great movie. Mike Mitchell was just on to talk about The Blob 88. Oh, yes. Movie. Oh, my God. Wait, <laughs> Synecdoche is a horror movie? Yeah. 
bless you, sweet angels. Hell yeah. Oh, so next, can you reckon the blob? To even just be in the same month <laughs> as, as as those two, I am fucking honored. <laughs> so a lot of fun stuff happening over there. So check out the Patreon for just five bucks a month. Come on. No, that anyone can afford that. Do it. <laughs> Worth it. Yeah, and rate and review if you're enjoying the show, or just tell a friend if you uh, don't feel like signing up for the Patreon. All right, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye.